Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Bible in a Year reading plan. We also have PDFs available on our website, grove.church. Yeah, and as usual, if you have questions, we would love for you to take some time and send them in. Uh, we really do enjoy that part of the podcast is just spending some time answering your specific questions. Uh, so we'd love for you to send those in. There's two ways you could do it. One, you can send us an email to info at grove.church church, or you can direct message our Grove Church Facebook page. We are the Grove Church in Washington State. Uh, we have a fun question tonight, today at the end of this podcast that we'll answer, but we'd love for you to do that uh, throughout the week or anytime you're listening to it. Uh, feel free to send us those questions. And then as far as resources that we're using today, we have the uh, ESV Study Bible, the Reformation Study Bible, uh, Zondervan Illustrated Bible Dictionary by J.D. Douglas, Merrill C. Tenney, and Moises Silva, and Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. Ooh, smart. We have not busted out good old systematic theology in quite some time. Yeah, it's been a while. It's a great um, it's a great reference book. Yes. And if you have the... Um, I once had dreams of reading it all the way through. I, I gave up. <laughs> I don't know when I gave up, but it's, it, re- it is really good. But yeah. it's like, you know, it's like 1,200 pages. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a beast. Yeah, I have a couple of them too from Northwest that I love. One is Lectures in Systematic Theology. It's a really good read, but dude, it, I, I, you can't read it all at once. My systematic theology textbook was just labeled, it was titled systematic theology. It was not very creative, but I think it was by Elmer L. Towns who wrote, Ooh. I forgot which one of the, one of the, um, essence of the old Testament and new Testament. Yeah. It's one of those two books he, he wrote. I think it's the new Testament one, but anywho, not that that's important. Also a good book though. I enjoyed, I enjoyed taking that. I think it was two semesters of class there, but this isn't a podcast about books today. It's true. It's a podcast about the sacrificial system. Woo-hoo! That is what we'll be talking about. Uh, today. I know you're all just thrilled about it. I know you last week, you were like, you know, it would go great with the gospel of Matthew talking about the sacrificial system. Yep. And because we're jumping into the book of Leviticus, we want to take, take some time to talk about uh, that. We just got out of Exodus where the law was established, but we really want to kind of jump into this. Uh, and kind of create a really good framework, I think, to help us understand uh, this this system and how it was created and what it was for. Well, and we'll talk about this too, because I think the sacrifice, sacrificial system, it seems really barbaric to modern mm-hmm. culture, um, but it's very essential to understanding not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. Dude, so, did I tell you that I totally pretended to do this with the stuffed animal one day as a youth pastor years and years ago? Oh, you sacrificed it. I thought you meant Dude, you were pretending to I do a podcast. A, I took a stuffed little cow. Uh, because we were talking about the whole, and you mentioned it's like the the sacrifice of the lamb, the blood of the lamb kind of thing. And I wanted right. I wanted students to understand this process, so I totally took some scissors and cut open a stuffed cow uh, and showed them. What would have been awesome is if you just like filled it with ketchup before. <laughs> just, so bad. Oh. When you said I practiced with a stuffed animal, I thought you meant like you did a p- fake podcast. Yeah, with just a for, for this session. I just wanted to make sure that the, I like it. The, the content was really worth it. Um, but yeah, so not just going into Leviticus, but also going into Matthew. Uh, yeah. with with what Jesus does in his death and resurrection. Yes, absolutely. It's very important to understand the sacrificial system. Um, and then it's also the oldest sacrament and formal act of worship that God reveals to humans. And so, what? So what I mean by that is it's not the first act of worship necessarily where people, you know, people praise God. Um, but the idea of this is an this is an act um, that God specifically condones and, and wants to have happen. As we'll see, it's kind of interesting how it starts off, but um, it's one of the first ones that we get. So basically right after Eden, we get the story of Cain and Abel, and that's all about sacrifices. Yeah. Uh, well, it's really, it's about murder. But before the what? murder, it's about spoilers. It's well, about sacrifices. sacrifices. Not really murder, but... 
It's you know, there's th- killing and sacrifice. Things die, so <laughs> in both of those. Um, okay, so there's three types of sacrificial systems we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, the pre mosaic sacrificial system, uh, the temple sacrificial system, and then finally uh, Jesus as the final sacrifice. So. Because you'll notice, again, we talked about today, uh, today we do not sacrifice at all. And even modern Judaism doesn't sacrifice, yeah. um, at least to my knowledge. So maybe there's like some groups out there that do. Yeah. Um, but clearly there's something that shifted, um, particularly with the destruction of the temple in AD 70 for, uh, for the Jews. And then for us as Christians, upon Christ's death and resurrection, that also shifted our, our view of what the sacrificial sacrificial system should be because yeah. it, it well, went from and when you say just just for clarity because when you say that we don't we don't practice sacrifice today uh, that's saying within the christian religious structure i mean there's there's groups and people groups out there that are still sacrificing something at some points in different sure. remote part, parts of the world so it's not that we're saying it's non-existent we're just saying in our in our christian or judeo-christian whatever protestant reality today contemporarily this is not a part of how we worship and what our faith really looks like and, and entails. Yeah. Upon Jesus' death and resurrection, the sacrificial system went from being part of the way that we worship God to being something that was fulfilled through yeah. Jesus' ministry. Yeah. And then we're told in the New Testament that offer our bodies as living sacrifices, which right. is an allusion to this whole sacrificial system. And again, you're going to see this bleed throughout the entirety of scripture. No pun intended. That's a bad word to use, but <laughs> it's woven into the entirety of scripture. So there you go. All right. So let's talk about the pre-Mosaic sacrificial system. And what we mean, what we mean by this is essentially what was sacrifice like before God actually revealed in the law the specific rules of how he wanted sacrifices to be done? So it is interesting to note that we are never given a scene where God implements a sacrificial system. It's just kind of assumed. Um, so this is the first passage of scripture that we ever hear about sacrifice. Uh, and it's Abel brought, or at least human sacrifice, uh, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But Cain and his his offering had no he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So again, we get this first story of uh, Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain being the jealous brother, he's jealous of that Abel's sacrifice is accepted. And lo and behold, that leads to a whole another set of problems. But in that, within that whole idea, it's got, God never comes forward and says, "Hey, I want you to sacrifice things for me." Um, and so, there's a couple of questions about how the sacrificial system came into place. Um, and th- I thought this was kind of an interesting thing to think about. Um, was it created by God? Is the first question because that's kind of what I always assumed mm-hmm. is that God said, "This is what I want," or uh, was it a way that man invented? as a way to show gratitude to their creator. So in other words, was the genesis of the idea of sacrifice something that God put in place, or was it humans wanting to show their gratitude to God by essentially um, intentionally taking things away from themselves and giving it to God? And they, either way, God clearly approves of it, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's not it's not a question of like, <laughs> it's like a pagan, a fully pagan thing that God's like, I don't want this. Uh, the question would just be, uh, how did it arise? So and mm-hmm. like I said, I always assumed that God... Um, just implemented it, which yeah. it's still, which still very much could be the case, but I'd never really thought about the other side of that, where maybe it was, maybe it was a human creation that God um, accepted and then eventually through the law um, turned into what he wanted it to be. Yeah. Established it more clearly. So 
yeah, and it depends on how deep you want to get because you can totally get to the depth of like, well, is God created? Because God created our, our, our brains the way we think, the way we're wired. But um, it is interesting too. Like, and I and I know that this is like the first indication in Genesis that we see uh, how man is sacrificing for God or to God. Uh, but you do also see, you know, the the idea that God is actually the first one to sacrifice animals for a purpose. Uh, and that was in Genesis at the fall in chapter three, I think is what I was just looking at. But mm-hmm. um, where he actually, he takes animal skins to cover Adam and Eve because they were naked and they realized it. Um, so there is something about the the picture here that the sacrifices are what atones and covers our sinfulness, uh, which is the picture of sacrifice in general. Right. Um, and you see that with the God's act uh, towards Adam and Eve, even in the midst of their sinfulness, their rebellion, not listening and trusting God. And he makes clothing for them to cover their nakedness, which is shame based upon the revelation of sin. So, Right. And so a couple other famous uh, sacrifices that happened before the Mosaic loss. We have Noah. um, After the flood subsides, Mm -hmm. he makes a sacrifice. um, And it's actually, it's even called a burnt offering, which we'll see later on. So it's, it's not just kind of killing an animal and leaving it there for the Lord. He's actually going through some of the ritual that we would see later, um, which that kind of in and of itself makes me think a little bit that it's instituted by God and those, yeah. because that seems like a, that seems like an odd thing to do, but you know, again, who knows? Uh, Abraham makes many sacrifices in Genesis, including the really famous story, uh, which Aaron, if you wanted to read the clip that we have there of um, Abraham and, and Isaac. Yeah. yeah. Genesis 22, nine through 14 in Evan's standard version, also known as the ESV which is the English standard version. One of these days, I'm just going to start putting uh, the Christian standard Bible in there too, just for for you. You're always going to forget. But it says this, verse 19 says, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in uh, in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from, from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the Mount, the Lord will, of the Lord, on the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So there you go. We get a picture of, um, and and even in there, I don't think Abraham. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think Abraham is sacrificing for any specific event. It just seems like it's it's part of his routine. Is that um, at a certain at a certain point after a certain amount of time has passed, Abraham offers sacrifices for himself and for his family. So yeah, I don't uh, I don't recall. But go. the interesting thing even about Noah, because I know you referenced Noah, like God brought animals to the ark. We know that's part of the story, but He also did bring animals for the the, the specific purpose of sacrifice. He brought, he, he, one of the things I remember because we were reading through it, like was this idea of like, here's two by two, but there's also extra animals for sacrifice mm-hmm. um, and to, to make an offering or whatever. I don't remember exactly the verbiage, but it also depends on the translation, but true. There you go. Uh, moving forward, Isaac and Jacob both offer sacrifices multiple times, mm-hmm. um, famously with Jacob at, a, at Bethel where he built an altar. Uh, and then Job offers sacrifices for him and his family. Uh, this also seems to be the practice of the surrounding area and Job's friends. Um, so it's not just Job offering sacrifices and everyone else is around, but his friends also mm-hmm. are clearly participate in the practice. Um, and what this means is that it was not just a practice of the Jews, um, or I guess specifically people in Abraham's line. 
Um, this is a thing. And I think this is one of the weird things that we've got. I don't know where we kind of got the idea, but I think just through, I don't know, maybe through just like Sunday school or like reading the Bible a certain way. But um, it wasn't just the Jews who worshiped God, like historically in the Old Testament. There's lots of, like Jethro is a great example, mm-hmm. uh, Moses' father-in-law, where there's just a pocket of people who clearly worship Yahweh. Uh, Job and his friends would be another one. Even though his friends, you know, they get their comeuppance at the end, they're also like um, – not Christians because you wouldn't be a Christian back then, but they work. They worship Yahweh as well. Yeah. It's not like they're pagans coming in to try and give Job some advice. So it's interesting. Also, I, I didn't know this. I was reading the other day, but um, there's some speculation that Eliphaz is uh, Esau's son because they share the same name. Refer, referring to the story of Job, right? So Evan's, sorry, still, Evan's still in the Job. I'm journey. in. A, I'm in a Job kick. What can I? What it's been a year now, but it's you know it's a good book. Um, but anyways, yeah, I, I never even thought about that, but uh, Esau's son is named as Eliphaz. So there's not necessarily evidence to say that they're the same one, but if they were, then it would actually put, it would be able to place Job really well as far as timeline goes, because that means it's probably taking place right before or right after the Israelites move to Egypt. And so it's taking place in hmm. Edom, either while the line of Abraham is gone um, or right before that. So there you go. Interesting. Fun fun fact, not even a fact, fun speculation. (laughs) Fun theory. Fun theory. Hypothesis. And then finally, uh, when Moses is asking for Pharaoh's permission to leave, um, it's specifically to go into the wilderness and offer sacrifices. And that's something I think we skip all the time too. When we think of the popular story of Moses, it's let my people go, uh, but we don't finish the thought, which is let my people go into the wilderness so that we may offer sacrifices to our God. So that's specifically what they're asking for. It's funny. This is so bad. Every time I read that, I'm like, oh, Joe, Moses is lying. You're not going to come back. Um, because that's what I feel like the implication of let us go into the wilderness to do this and then we'll be back. And that's what, and that's part of it was Pharaoh's plea. Like, okay, you can go do this, but come back. You can take the guys, but nobody else. Or you can like, so anyways. Yeah, it is. It is. He's not really lying, says. but. Yeah, it's true. Um, so anyways, as we all know, because uh, we talked about Exodus a few weeks ago. Uh, Pharaoh does not let them go. And so God's just kind of like, you know what, plagues. And then Pharaoh finally relents. So they go. um, And then in the middle of the wilderness is where we get the start of the temple sacrificial system. Mm -hmm. It starts off as a tabernacle, but it's the same thing. Yeah. For the sake of uh, keeping it simple, we're going to count the tabernacle as essentially the first temple. And I'm I'm using air quotes with my fingers there. Yes, I can see them. And then, yeah. So for you, dear listeners, just imagine me putting air quotes there. And then obviously there's the the first proper temple, which is built by Solomon. And then the second proper temple, which is started by Zerubbabel. Um, It's built over many generations. And then eventually it takes its final form under Herod the Great, because even the worst of people can do something good once in a while. So there you go. It's true. Thanks for... Specifically, thanks, thanks specifically for that one thing, Herod, and, <laughs> and nothing else about your life. Um, but anyway, and then it's, it's that temple would be destroyed in AD 70. <clears throat> All right, so starting in Exodus, uh, starting after the Exodus from Egypt, the Israelites begin a formal system of sacrifice that would define uh, what it means to worship God until the death and resurrection of the Messiah. So, this is this is a long time that all this is happening, yes, um, and Essentially, from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus, this sacrificial system is the one that um, is is there. And as far as I don't know about years because I haven't done the math on it, but definitely as far as biblical pages, this is the one. This is the system that's in place for most of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, massive amounts of the law are devoted to what sacrifices should look like. So, and when we say the law, we mean the first five books of the Bible, and then specifically. Mm-hmm. 
the back half of Exodus and then Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are uh, there's a lot of rules and laws about sacrifice going on there. Uh, but these included, so just to kind of give you an idea, uh, there's animal sacrifices, which would again you would, you would kill an animal, and these would be the sin offering, uh, the guilt offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering were all animal sacrifices. And then there's bloodless sacrifices. Um, sometimes it's called vegetable sacrifices, but I think it's kind of a misnomer because it's not always vegetables. <laughs> so, but it's, it's there. Um, but yeah, these would include like the grain offering, uh, which specifically this one's kind of interesting because this would be given to the priests. Mm-hmm. And so this is part of how they ate because the priests, um, they, you know, back in the day, money wasn't really as much of a thing as we think of it as being today. Yeah. And if you're not farming and you're not really, you don't have anything to trade because you're a priest. So this, it makes sense that God would make a way for them to be able to get sustenance as well. Mm-hmm. And there's also the drink offering. So those were both, uh, did not require animals to happen. Um, and the idea behind these sacrifices was to offer atonement for sin, uh, particularly on Yom Kippur or the the day of atonement, which we see established. And we've did, I can't remember if we did a full episode on the day of atonement or if we just did it on our episode in Leviticus, but we, I know I we, think spent, we just talked about it in Leviticus. Was that what it was? So mm-hmm. that would be the beginning of last year. So like 50 episodes ago. Um, but if you want a, a good, a little, uh, a little treatise, I guess, or whatever you want to call it on, on what Yom Kippur is, you can go back and listen to that. Uh, but to just kind of wrap it up here, a, a quick snippet from Leviticus 16, 29 through 30. Uh, and this is talking to Aaron. Uh, and it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the 10th day of the month, you shall afflict yourself and you shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day, atonement shall be made uh, for you uh, to cleanse you. And you shall be clean before the Lord from all of your sins. We're talking about Aaron, the high priest, not Aaron sitting across the table from him. That is correct. Yeah. Aaron, the high priest, Moses' brother, uh, the first high priest of Israel would be on this day uh, making atonement for the people of Israel, which is also where we get the term scapegoat. So fun fact there. The scapegoat was part of that whole deal. Uh, and Yom Kippur is also still celebrated by Jews today, mm-hmm. not in the same way. But uh, if you talk, yeah, I hope if, not. Yeah, if you have if you have Jewish friends though, um, and not like I mean pra- practicing uh, Jewish friends, Yom Kippur would be the the high holy day on the calendar. Uh, next up, or at least on my notes, uh, the system begins in the tabernacle, continues with Solomon's temple, and finally, uh, eventually, in the second temple. Uh, and you'll you'll notice too when we get to the first temple being built by Solomon. It's a huge deal, yeah. Um, because like David clearly wants to build it, and yeah. God and God it's tells like, him nope. no. Yep. Uh, and even up until this point too, it's a place to house the Ark of the Covenant, which that's something we could probably do an episode on eventually as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but we because we don't really talk about it all that much no. as as kind of Christian culture, we just let we let Indiana Jones talk about it, but which is so accurate and not. <laughs> if you open it up, your face will melt off, especially if you're a Nazi. Yeah. So that's what I learned about the Ark. Um, but Thanks, Indy. Yeah, the tabernacle houses this thing for a long time. Uh, it keeps getting stolen because uh, the Philistines are jerks. Um, and so all these things are happening. Eventually, it's not even at the tabernacle anymore. I forgot the name of the guy who uh, holds it, but he has it in his home for a long time. And it's like he, he's just blessed beyond all measure because he has the Ark of the Covenant dwelling with him. Uh, eventually, it's brought back and then it's installed into the temple uh, once Solomon built it. Um, but you'll see, we talk a lot on this podcast about the idea of the kings of Israel and Judah can kind of be divided up into three categories. There's the bad ones, the good ones, and the great ones. Um, and the mark of the great kings is almost always, did they return the nation 
to proper temple, the, the proper temple sacrificial system. So what you'll see is, you know, with the great kings, I'm, I'm thinking of, in my mind, like Hezekiah, Josiah, um, Asa would be another one where they actually went into the land and they, they tore down what's called the high places yeah. or the places where sacrifice were being offered. Um, where Specifically was, talking post David too, not even like David was a great king. Right. He made some really, but it really, again, you got to remember the temple is established after David, Solomon, his son. Um, that's that's what really when we say great kings, bad kings, it's after the line of David and even Solomon to a degree. So, mm-hmm. and so we we see this marker time and time again. Um, I have this example from Josiah, which I think is really good. Um, but it says this is Second Kings twenty two fifteen through twenty. It's twenty three. Oh man, Evan misread it. I I lied to you. I just don't want you to open your Bibles and read along and be like, that what? This is confusing. Dear listeners, I apologize. Uh, 23, 15 through 20, it says, Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar was the high place, and he pulled it. He pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust, and he also burned the Asherah. Uh, the Asherah would be uh, poles and idols made to worship the, I believe, goddess Asherah. I believe it's a female, but... Could be wrong. I'll trust you. Uh, And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mound, and he sent and took the bones out of the tomb and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. Then he said, what is that monument that I see? And the men of the city took him. It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, let him be, let no man move his bones. So they left his bones alone and the bones of the prophet uh, with the bones of the prophet that came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all of the shrines in the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made, provoking the, uh, the, the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests and all of the high pla- of all the high places who were there on the altars and the and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. So last sentence, really brutal. Yes. Uh, but essentially, Josiah goes in and he's the king of Judah. He's tearing down all these altars to false god, and it says he defiles the altars too. So it's not just that he kind of takes them down; he defiles them in a way that it would be inappropriate to ever sacrifice anything there again. Yeah. Um, and there's a good. I think the connection can be made that the way he's defiling them is essentially killing the priests on the altars and then leaving their bones there. So the whole idea is just kind of, yeah, it's brutal. Yep. It's brutal. This is brutal. Um, And it's also part of what makes Josiah counted among the great Kings Mm -hmm. is the whole idea that he's not, he's not willing to accept that the people will not be worshiping God the proper way. And he returns them to uh, the proper way of worship. So there you go. Um, And then after the return of Jews, from the exile, we see uh, the monotheistic worship of Yahweh really take a permanent hold uh, in the people of Israel with sacrificial journeys to Jerusalem being important markers of the citizens. So we've talked about this before, um, that really pre-exile, the struggle of the Israelites had always been that they worshiped Yahweh and they worshiped other gods. And like we said, the great kings are the ones who would return them mm-hmm. to that monotheistic worship yeah. of, of the Lord God alone. Um, and then after the exile, we really don't hear much about um, that struggle. It's true. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's, it's, yeah, they understand like, okay, Yahweh is God. Exile did his job. Yep. And then the, in the New Testament, it's not even a thing that Jesus deals with uh, the idea that 
Yahweh isn't God. He yeah. deals with people thinking that he is not God, but like the, the whole idea of uh, worshiping other gods doesn't even occur to them. Yeah. And I wondered, yeah, I wonder too, if maybe that's, this just occurred to me, but I wonder too, if maybe that was some of the reason that Jesus met with maybe a little bit more resistance is this idea of like, did some people think that maybe returning to like a polytheistic way of, way of looking at the world? Probably not, but it's yeah. something to think about. Uh, and so eventually, uh, the erection of idols in the temple of the Greek gods, uh, sorry, in the temple, like the, the temple proper to Greek gods is what I mean. Not like they put up idols in the, like the temple of Artemis or something. Uh, and the sacrifice of unclean animals to them was a primary motivation for the Maccabean revolt, uh, which led to the reconsecration of the temple, um, which is what people celebrate in Hanukkah. So when Hanukkah rolls around, um, it's not just about lighting candles. It's about basically the Maccabees saying like, hey, you can't just sacrifice pigs to Zeus and then throwing the Greeks out of Israel and then taking back the temple. So kind of one of the more um, underrated things that we never talk about, just because we don't hold that story to just be necessarily biblically canonical, which doesn't mm -hmm. mean it's not true. We yeah. just mean it's not in the Bible, but yeah, it's a good story. Yeah. And I think, it, I mean, I think that that even... You know, it should enhance us, um, even as modern Christians today, like to understand that Hanukkah and it's, I mean, it's it's almost a, an annual act of realigning our hearts to worship properly. Uh, that's part right. of the beauty of Hanukkah and that, that we can, as Christians, even learn from it and glean from in that moment too. So um, I'm in this like Lent journey right now. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's just showing the value of like pausing on a regular basis to remember significant realities and significant, significant truths as Christians. And Hanukkah is that same thing. Um, I don't right. practice Hanukkah personally because I'm not, you know, of, of Jewish descent, but um, I still find value in it. And it's that reminder. Well, I think it is one of the unfortunate things that we've lost in, I don't even know how to describe it necessarily, but um, we're not whole, because like, the Bible makes clear, especially in the New Testament, that we're not hold to the festivals of the Old Testament. We're mm -hmm. not hold, held to those things. Um, but that doesn't mean there's not good things to like stop and think about. Yeah. Like Hanukkah is a great time to think about the idea of, worshiping God the proper way and mm -hmm. returning to God, just like the kings of uh, of Judah. I was about to say Israel and Judah, but I don't think the kings of Israel ever did. Uh, but the kings of Judah would return their people to proper worship. Um, and then in, in the same way that Christmas reminds us of the new covenant coming, yeah. Hanukkah can remind us of kind of the old covenant being reestablished. And same yeah. with Yom Kippur as well, of this whole idea of like, we can, we can remember God's um, atoning grace that existed even before Jesus um, yeah, in absolutely. those moments. So there you go. Uh, and then finally, we get Jesus as the final sacrifice. And I would say this is specifically how the sacrificial system applies to us today. Yeah. Um, it's really good to know the history of everything. But uh, as modern Christians, if we're saying, well, what does this mean to me? This is what it means. Yeah. And I think it's important too, even just before we jump into this, one of the things even I was listening to recently, um, there's some things I feel like in in new age Christianity, and I say I use that term very carefully because I'm not trying to be flippant or ridiculous about it. But we have tried to find creative ways to communicate deep, profound biblical truths. Um, and in that, like you hear things, the statements, I remember hearing the statements like the blood of the lamb growing up. And right. the problem is it doesn't make sense to people today. And so there was always this move to be creative and figure out ways to communicate what that word or what that phrasing really means without using the word because they're afraid of the disconnect. But I think it's really important as Christians to understand in, in, in such a deep and profound way so that way we can clearly communicate and not lose the weight of, of a statement like the blood of the lamb. That, that's why it's so important to take the time that we're doing and working through the sacrificial system 
in scripture is because the New Testament isn't, it doesn't do away with it. It actually fulfills it. And that's the beauty of Jesus. I think that's part of the tension that I, I, I think is really important to understand is this, this system was established as a proper way to keep us not just right before God, but to recognize our need for God and his work and his redemption and his grace. And, and so when it comes into this conversation, now it shifts into Jesus as the final sacrifice. Hopefully you can now see what he's done in, in a more vibrant light, so to speak. Um, but I think that that's just one of the, the side notes that I think is really important uh, as we're kind of working through and having, you know, come into this last component of this podcast. Yeah. When, when John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that, that word means such a, a different thing mm-hmm. to the first century Jew than it means to us today. Like when we, when we say lamb, like when someone looks up to me and says, or talks to me and says, picture a lamb, I think of like something really cute and cuddly. And cuddly. Um, if you're, unless Bye. you're, unless you're Greek, then you think of dinner, you bunch of, you bunch of sickos. Um, but for most of the world, I call them gyros. For your gyros. My wife, my wife doesn't like it, but that's funny. Um, like that doesn't like that. I call them gyros, but she loves the euros. So there you go. Anyways. But for most of the world, yeah, it's something cute and cuddly. Um, and either, even if you think of dinner, you're not thinking of necessarily like sacrifice, but when yeah. to a first century Jew, when you say the lamb of God, you're thinking of, um, and not to be too graphic with it, but you're thinking of something very gory. Yeah. Like you're thinking of things that are sacrificed. It, it even talks about how on, on the day of atonement, like blood would run down the altar because of the amount of sacrifices that were being done. Yeah. It, it was a very gruesome scene. And so it wasn't saying this whole like, look at Jesus. He is meek and small and fluffy. And sheepish. No, it's saying, it's, it's, he's really saying like, this is what the ministry of the Messiah will be. The yeah. ministry, the, the primary ministry of the Messiah is... Um, to be the perfect sacrifice for the mm-hmm. atonement of of all people, not just of the yeah, Jews. To die. Yep. So there you go. Um, the law does a great job, and we've said this on the podcast before, of revealing to us our need for atonement. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the New Testament, we're shown how Christ is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Um, in the same way that Jesus is the better Adam, he is also the better lamb. Yeah. And one, I, I really wish... I wish I knew the name of the guy who gave the sermon because it's like one of my favorite messages of all time and I could never find it. <laughs> I've Googled it like a bajillion times. If you, dear listener, know the message I'm talking about, please find it for me. But it was it was <laughs> preached at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. I know the podcast, but it was um, – um, essentially, it was literally the guy went on for probably 40 minutes and the whole message was so-and-so did – like Adam did this, Jesus did this. Jesus is the better Adam. Moses did this. Jesus did this. Jesus is the better Moses. And he was basically just working with the motif of how Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the shadows that we see in the Old Testament. It's incredibly powerful. Um, but in the same way, the lamb of, of, of man, if you will, or mm-hmm. the sacrifices of man um, were the temporary atonement for sin yeah. that was not permanent. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the permanent atonement for sin. Therefore, Jesus is the better lamb mm-hmm. is kind of the way to look at it. So, um, so yes, if you know the podcast that Evan's referring to, the message, please, please send it in. I will send you. I don't know, I don't know what I'll send you. But I'll send you something. It'd be, it'd be great. Um, so anyway, finally, in, um, in the Systematic Theology book by Wayne Grudem, uh, he breaks down Christ's death and resurrection uh, as accomplishing the following. And I really like this. So I kind of, this is straight from systematic theology. So, Thank you, Grudem. Yeah, his book is awesome. Read it, um, buy it, reference it. It's a good And thing. if you can read it in one sitting. 
Major props. If you give me one sitting, that I want to meet you. That's that's a that's impressive. <laughs> so, but anyway, uh, so it accomplishes the following four things. Number one, <clears throat> sacrifice. Um, so Jesus, uh, it was to pay the price that we deserve to pay. Um, and he attaches scriptural references for each of these, which is also really helpful. So in Hebrews nine twenty six, it says, uh, "For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself." And obviously, that's talking about Jesus there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing that Christ's death and resurrection accomplishes is propitiation. Um, it's a big word. It's a big word, dude. This is a word that every time I read, I'm like, I know what that word means, but I can't remember. Well, and what's interesting too is when you look it up in, um, like, the Merriam-Webster dictionary, it's it's essentially a synonym for sacrifice. Like, mm-hmm. it's it, because it's become so only used in the Christian context that it's kind of lost the original meaning. Not not yeah. like it's lost the history, but it's into modern ears the the idea of it is kind of lost. Yeah. But um, it's to remove us from the wrath of God. So a sacrifice is is slightly different in that I guess I guess if you want to say it this way the propitiation is what is accomplished by the sacrifice. Yeah. Um and so Christ's death and resurrection the wrath of God was on us as sinners and then Christ's death and resurrection took that away. Um it's kind of like the song uh in Christ alone the one line which I always I don't, it always just sticks out in my, in mm. my mind because I just love it but you know it's um on the cross where Jesus died the wrath of God was pacified is the whole uh, kind of idea there. And that would be in first John four. Pacified or satisfied? Satisfied? I think it's satisfied. Oh my gosh, it probably is. Look at me just looking like a fool to our dear listeners. Uh in first John four ten, it says, This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. So there you go. Uh number three, it accomplishes reconciliation. Um, and it's to overcome our separation from God. Mm-hmm. So one of the big themes of particularly Jesus' ministry is to show how far um, separated we had become. Um, not just the Jews in that day, but all of us. <laughs> the, the great chasm uh, that exists between us and relationship with God. The death and resurrection of Christ reconciles us to relationship with God. Um, and the verse there is 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19. So two verses. Ooh. Uh, ooh. And it says, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And then finally, the, the last thing it accomplishes is redemption. Uh, Christ's sacrifice is an act that redeems us from our slavery to sin. Um, and for this one, it is Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Um, and speaking of words that have lost their meaning, like propitiation, uh, redeemed mm-hmm. means, it's just kind of like this Christianese word that means like, oh yeah, I'm saved. Um, but the idea of redeemed is, and is, it, I think it's most powerfully illustrated in the book of Hosea, where mm-hmm. he um, he marries... Um, either straight up a prostitute or what like my grandfather would have referred to as a loose woman. I don't know, but one, one of the two. Um, and then she goes and she sells herself essentially into slavery to someone else. And then Hosea goes and he redeems her. And what that means is he pays the price um, for her slavery mm-hmm. and then he returns her back home. And that's what Christ is doing. He's paying the price um, for our slavery to sin. And then he returns us back home. So yeah, really powerful thing that yeah. we, we just kind of lose. So that's yeah, true. And that is our 
episode on the sacrificial system. Unless yeah. you had something else to add. I don't no, 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 no. I was taking a deep breath. I was sighing <sighs> in satisfaction. Deep breath. pacification. But before you go, we did have a question come in this week, so we're going to go ahead and answer it. Um, before we do, though, please leave us a five-star review. Uh, it just helps to get the podcast out there to more people. I did notice this week that we got like four, which I was like, Ooh, hey. thank you, listeners. So, Did they have names attached to them? No. Oh, okay. We do like the written ones. We'll give you shout-outs, too. We'll <laughs> shout you out. There you go. We do like the written ones a little bit more. But hey, if you just click the five stars, that works for me, too. Uh, all right. So the question that came in, good morning, gentlemen. Thank you. Uh, although... Oh, wait, no, it is the morning. It just feels like evening because I'm so tired right now. Yes. Uh, it is currently 1030 a.m. Ooh. Another let's read the Bible question for you. In Exodus 7 and 8, Moses starts to show signs and wonders to Pharaoh. What bothers me about this is that this, uh, what bothers me about this story was that their so the sorcerers and magicians managed to repeat some of their secret arts per the NIV. Uh, what does this say about A, where that power came from, and B, our needs as Christians to be able to discern when a sign and wonder is miraculous, God-given, or a con? All right. This is... It's a good question. Yeah. I would, I would say this right off the bat. The fact that you're asking the second part of that question is really, really good. Um, because sometimes it's so easy just to get like, well, where did the power come from? Okay. But it, it, it is like shows an anticipation of continued signs and wonders of God's work. Um, and we have to be discerning. We have to be, yep. um, you know, scripture says shrewd as a serpent, but gentle as a dove. But we have to also be wise in how we're addressing and navigating the world we live in. So the fact that you're asking that question, well done, sir. Yep. I'm assuming it's a sir. Sir. All right. So anyways, uh, so the two, the two questions uh, that they asked, A is I think a little bit easier to answer. So um, basically there's, there's two options, which yeah. I feel like so many of our, um, so many of our questions just come down to this, like, well, here's two options and believe what you want to believe. Mm -hmm. um, so either A, they're doing this through deception. Um, so think of like modern mu magicians, right? Where like Penn and Teller. Illusions. Yeah. When they do stuff. Smoke and mirrors. Yeah. They're, they're up front. Like they're not trying to lie to you and say like, we have like magical powers, but like, you know, like they'll do stuff and I'll be like, how did they do that? Yeah. Like, right. I don't even, I don't even get this. My favorite show is the people who try and stump Penn and Teller. Dude, that's such a, it's such a good show yeah, for it's a good, us. It's a good one to watch. Anyway, recommendation from the <laughs> Let's Read the Bible podcast. Anyway. Um, but it could be something like that, where it's essentially, there's no supernatural element to it. They're just using sleight mm -hmm. of hand and deception to, to trick people into doing things. Um, the I, I don't know how they do that with some of the stuff they did, but yeah. that's very well an option. Uh, and then the second option would be there's some type of demonic power at work. Um, and then this may even be an explanation for some of the revelations of Egyptian gods. So like the reason some of the Egyptian gods look the way that they do is because that's the way demonic spiritual powers chose to reveal themselves mm -hmm. to these priests um and then is there some power at work that god is allowing to be at work in that yeah. moment so who knows well and I, th and I think you've got to be there's no denying that there are dark forces at work um i know i know several individuals one specifically that grew up in the cult uh, mm -hmm. and saw some very demon demonic real things that he even himself wants to talk about um and, and it is, you know, when I read that, I do read it as if it's it's a battle of good versus evil. And evil always has a version of the same power, but it's much more diminished. And you see that even in these acts of Moses. Like I think of right. when they throw this, he throws a staff down on the ground, turns into a serpent or a snake or whatever. And so do these, you know, these, I call them whatever, witches and warlocks, whatever. But these magicians and sorcerers of the, of the Pharaoh do the same thing. But Steve Martin, that, Martin Short, if you will. Thank you. Yeah, Steve no Martin. <laughs> So, <laughs> that's from Prince of Egypt. But that, um, 
But the the serpent that the staff the staff that Moses threw down actually ate the other serpents, like they ate the other snakes. Um, and so you see, it's a version of power. It's a version that is still in subjection to the power of God. Um, and and so I I, I I rest and I lean in not rest, but I lean into the to the understanding that they, these are very real, dark demonic things at work and display um, to keep. The, the 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 what's the word the the facade that they're in control right. and in power so and that's what i that's where i land as well mm-hmm. <clears throat> i think that there's probably some there's some demonic agency happening here yeah. and some things that are being allowed to uh that are being allowed to happen yeah. so there you go so that's the answer to the first side of the question all right second side um what does it say about our need as christians to be able to discern when a sign and wonder is miraculous slash god-given or a con it's, it says that we need to be discerning. <laughs> yeah. So there's a, there's a couple things that I think are just kind of like good rules of thumb. Yeah. Number one, listen to the message. Um, if the message is give me money and God will do this miracle in your life, it's probably a con. For three um, payments, you can get this this prayer cloth. Right. And I mean like- this holy water. We we kind of joke about it because I and I do think there's like there's something that is kind of funny about it in the sense of like in in in, in the way that anything um, tragic is somewhat funny, um, but it's really sad because you yeah. see people who are in these these desperate situations they just want anything to happen and then these guys I mean mostly on TV but there's like big rallies and stuff too where mm-hmm. it's just like hey if you like if you just give me this money. Um, then I don't know, whatever you're hawking, right? Like this, this miracle spring water from Israel, you sprinkle it on your bills and it'll go away or I'll, I'll do whatever it is. And like, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just one of those things. I think there's, I forgot where I saw it, but it was a joke about how, um, like basically like satirizing the idea of like, uh, one of the faith healers, like, Hey, he went to a children's hospital and healed all the kids because that's obviously what you would do if you like just were able to do that on command. Oh, geez. Um, oh man. But anyway, so I think that would be. Is is the message of the person, the gospel, and the love and the redemption of Jesus, then I think um, I'm much more apt to believe what's happening than yeah. all of a sudden if if it if it's pretty clear from off the bat that they're that they're more of a charlatan than anything else, yeah. then that's something like we discerned yeah. with. I think it comes down to like who who's it actually glorifying? Like sure. that, that's yeah. I mean, Jesus's whole point in doing the miracles and performing wonders was to glorify God. Um, was to reveal his divinity, reveal his power, reveal his might, um, for no other reason besides to to glor- to glorify God. And so I think that's part of it. I think that's kind of the same filter as um, the message is either give me, give me, give me, and this will glorify God. Because it's really easy to tag that. And it's like, and this is the way you glorify God by doing this. Like, no, if it's about a person, then then be very be very guarded with that. Um, yeah, because at the end of the day, we've even seen God can use. He used he used Herod to establish a temple. God uses broken, fallen, immoral people to still execute his will because his ways are higher than our ways. So that's a layer to it. But I would also say this too, like when it comes to demonic powers and forces, it's 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 not something to I, I say two things that I'm trying to be very careful because it's it's like literally tagging it at the end of a question when I feel like it's totally a one-on-one or not even a one-on-one, but it's an ongoing conversation. It's not something that we have to necessarily be fearful of right. as Christians because the power of God that is inside of us supersedes the power of darkness around us. Um, and it's not something we walk around with this invincible attitude 
um, in combating dark forces. But when we come across darkness and we discern and we sense that this is not of God and it's evil and dark, we don't have to be fearful, but we also need to be prayerful. We also need to be very diligent in seeking God and running to Jesus and, and allowing him to be our shield and our, and our covering. Uh, and so I, I don't think I don't think we have to be fearful of it, but we do need to be diligent in our spiritual walks to not allow room for fear or tri- or, 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 or um, what's the other word I was going to look for? Anyways, I, I just think we need to make sure we're walking confidently in who God has established us to be and knowing that the source of power, just like Moses standing before Pharaoh and the sorcerers, he had, there was confidence. Now I'm sure there was some fear. I'm sorry. Like if I'm throwing it like, cool, cool, check out this. Like God is all powerful. My staff is now a snake. Like Oh shoot! These, other, <laughs> these these sorcerers did the same thing, and I'm sure there was a layer of doubt to a degree. But then watching God's power unfold in so many different ways, I think that there's just a layer of like God, you're in control, and there's a certain posture of humility saying, "I don't have answers. I don't have this all figured out." But God, you do, and that's where we live and and should continue to be discerning from. Um, and if it's a con, if you have the ability to call it out, call it out in the moment. Like, I, but yeah. if you don't, then don't. Um, but it's, it's when it's miraculous and a God given, we celebrate that we rejoice in God's provision and God's power. When it's not of God, we speak truth and we speak truth in boldness and in love and in grace. And I think, I think the main, I'm trying to think how to phrase this in my head, but (laughs) did you get to the end of your coffee there? (laughs) No, I pulled the straws up. Sorry guys. Um, (laughs) the way that we discern biblical, biblically sound teaching from false gospel, I think there's a lot of similarities between that and how we discern um, miracles from God and then cons, as mm-hmm. uh, as the listener put it, which I think is, is a pretty apt word. Um, so, and I think it's kind of, it kind of just lands up in the same way, right? Like, I think the the number one, here in the U.S., I think the number one false gospel that we struggle with is the, the prosperity gospel, the idea that Jesus and God exist primarily as like a vending machine to give you what you want as long as you serve them then they then you just get whatever you want in your life um and i think a lot of the a lot of the cons work the same way where it's the the message of the gospel and again i'm using air quotes around that that they're giving is if you follow god then he will heal you Mm -hmm. or if you follow god then he will do this thing for you that you so desperately want to happen um, and the, what it cheapens is salvation itself. Yeah. And I think, I think Tim Keller put it this way, um, which was a really good example, but essentially it, the way that that treats God is like imagining if, if, um, if you, wa- if you were left millions of dollars of inheritance when you had a relative that you didn't even know existed, died, but all of a sudden you have all of this money. Um, and then you get engaged shortly after. But then something legally happens to where you find out that you're actually not going to get any of that money. It's going to someone else. And then your fiance leaves you. Um, well, what you could reasonably conclude is that your fiance never actually loved you. They just loved what they were going to be able to get away from you. Um, and it's the same way with Christians, where if we only serve God when things are going well and when he does what we want him to do... Mm-hmm. Um, but then when he doesn't do what we want him to do, we leave. We're like that fiance where clearly we just were serving God because of the stuff. Yeah. Because what can, we get. Yeah. As opposed to for the redemption <laughs> and the grace and the love um, that he always offers us. So I think having having that kind of heart 
Um, and having that kind of discernment will help us to see um, not just false miracles from true miracles, but also help us see false teaching from true teaching. Yeah. So there you go. Hopefully that, hopefully that answers your question. It's uh, a good question. Yeah, no, it, it was really good. So uh, for sure, but that is going to go ahead and wrap it up for another episode of let's read the Bible. Uh, just as a quick reminder, if this podcast has been a blessing to you, uh, please consider supporting the ministry that we do here at the Grove Church financially. Uh, you could do that by visiting our website, grove.church, and there's a give button right on the top right corner. Um, and finally, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only podcast or research uh, research or resource of the Grove <laughs> Church. Uh, you can find all of our other resources on our website at grove.church. Hey, have a great day. See you next week.